Welcome to This Means War, a podcast that looks at contemporary conflict, how wars are being fought around the world today, and what this might mean for the future. I'm Peter Roberts, your host, ensconced in a subterranean warren on the south coast of the UK. With a background in wars and warfare, I wanted to dig a bit deeper into the current conflicts around the world and get a sense over how the protagonists were fighting. Now you can pick some of this up from mainstream media, more still in specialist journals and online content. But most of this is usually limited by the word count their authors are allowed or the airtime that journalists get in any one segment. So here, I wanted to delve into a little bit more about what this means for us now and how it might shape the future of warfare. In February 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine again. Whilst the Ukrainian military may have been prepared for this dramatic turn of events, the remainder of the world was, for the most part, taken by surprise. A really shoddy invasion plan led to a failed coup attempt by the Russians and the initial attack on Kiev became a lesson in the failures of intelligence, poor assumptions and the limitations of special forces. Yet this did not stop Russian divisions crossing the demarcation lines and attacking from the east, south and north. Over the following months, the war has become a grinding, attritional fight much the way most conflicts do, targeting infrastructure, population centres, major cities and long-range strikes by missiles and artillery. It's a fight about taking and holding ground. While orthodox and mainstream Western commentary seems to have been taken aback by the conventional nature of Russia's moves, having presumed it would take the form of non-kinetic, non-linear, hybrid or grey zone warfare, there have been many passionate commentaries about the utility of some capabilities in this form of fight and the redundancy of other arms. As ever, much of the real story lies in the realities of logistics, supply and war stocks, as well as in the motivation, training and ethos of the people doing the fighting. And the resilience of the local population and infrastructure has been notable too. This fight caught the imagination of the Western publics in a very different way. The Western political response has also been significant. Support has thus far weathered well. Weapons have been provided to Ukraine in large numbers, even if they're taking some time to get to the front lines. Sanctions were rapidly applied to a much larger degree than had been predicted, and refugees have been welcomed in open arms by many states. Yet just five months into the campaign, there are signs that resolve in some Western states may be weakening. Russia's control over gas and fossil fuels has sent commodity prices rocketing worldwide. Recession beckons for many economies outside Ukraine. And whilst embargoes on Russian gas might be manageable in a European summer, this possibly won't be the case come winter. Meanwhile, the Russian economy has not collapsed, as some predicted under the sanctions regimes, although it did default on sovereign debt for the first time today. Indeed, it is performing better in some sectors than its Western counterparts. The final chapter of this war is a long way from being written. But in this episode, I wanted to get the lowdown on what's been happening on the fighting fronts in the last week, and we record this on the 27th of June. My guest today has just stepped off a plane, a train, and a taxi probably to get across the border. Dr. Jack Watling is a senior research fellow at the Royal United Services Institute and has been in and out of the country several times over the past year. His research has long been focused on land forces, forms of fighting, army capabilities and how success is determined on the battlefield. Jack, welcome to the show and welcome back to the UK. So tell me, what's been happening in Ukraine over the past week? I think this last week has actually been very important in terms of the trajectory of the conflict. At the beginning of the week, the Ukrainian military found itself in many ways in a fight equivalent to the Battle of Verdun. 
they were fixed in a politically necessary fight to defend terrain that had been largely encircled by the Russians in Syria-Donetsk. And as a result, they were taking a pretty unsustainable level of casualties, largely among their best troops, because of an overwhelming concentration of Russian ground units and artillery encircling their positions in the Donbass. Now, a couple of days ago, the Ukrainians withdrew from some of those locations and ceded ground. And as a result, they have set up a much more defensible line, which should enable them, because of natural barriers, to have a lower force density to hold the ground, and therefore to reduce the level of attrition that they face against that massed Russian fire. At the same time, the Russians are still holding that overwhelming fire's advantage. And while we are seeing Western equipment trickle into Ukraine, and a number of long-range precision strikes this week that hit supply dumps and other infrastructure, does demonstrate the impact that those systems can have. We are also in a position where the Ukrainians are not able to concentrate and therefore not able to counterattack. The critical question over the next few weeks is whether that continuation of international support will allow the Ukrainians to pick apart the Russian logistics system, thereby suppress its artillery advantage and increasingly be able to shift onto a more offensive posture. And so I think when we look back, we could see this week and the next as actually quite a subtle, but nonetheless important turning point in the dynamics on the ground. Alternatively, we're seeing the Russians reorganize their forces. And if the Ukrainians are not able to get those systems in place quickly enough to achieve that disruptive effect against Russian logistics, then we could see this pan out as a slow rolling attritional fight, which does unfortunately favor the Russian military as they have a greater reserve of manpower to push into the conflict than the Ukrainians. Just for context, and I want to get into each of those questions because they're amazing updates. Thank you. But the the size and scale of the forces, it's hard to get an appreciation. People alter their estimates of you know how many of the Russians got eighty five percent of their combat power, or seventy percent of their combat power, or sixty percent of their combat power. You know, is it is one hundred and twenty thousand troops? Is it four hundred thousand? And at the same time, what is the Ukrainian? armed resistance look like? I mean, is it the 40,000 militia plus the divisions? What do the two sides feel like in terms of scale? So the Ukrainian armed forces at the beginning of the conflict were able to bring about 280,000 troops to the field after some initial mobilization. In addition, with the territorial defense forces, they are probably wielding upwards of 400,000 troops. The Russians moved into Ukraine with 180,000 troops, give or take, plus some mobilized civilian conscripts from the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, whose morale and capability was very low, along with some internal security forces. So overall, perhaps 200,000 troops. But I think those overall numbers are quite misleading when we talk about the force ratios and what that looks like on the ground. The territorial defense units are largely fixed in defensive operations because they lack the tactical capability to undertake serious offensive operations. And so really on the Ukrainian side, you're looking at most maneuver fighting being undertaken by about five brigades. And they are 
being used in a range of ways. They are either having their personnel distributed among territorial defense units to bolster the combat skills of those newly levied troops, or they are being brought back together, operating at sometimes battalion level to conduct small-scale counterattacks. But to be honest, given the scale of the artillery threat at the moment, the Ukrainians are very rarely operating above company group. For the Russians, they took massive casualties in the first three weeks of the conflict and have therefore been in this process of continual replenishment of their units through a mixture of short-term service contracts and increasingly through the conscription or mobilization, rather, of individuals with prior military experience, usually older individuals. And so Russian troop levels are actually remaining somewhat steady. They were slightly under strength in a lot of their units when the conflict started because they wanted to avoid leaning too heavily on conscripts. But at the moment, because they have fires dominance, in the main effort, the axis of their main effort, they are achieving force ratios of around seven to one quite often. And so although actually the Russian force is smaller than the Ukrainian force, tactically on the ground, they are bringing many more people to bear. And the Ukrainians are often having to fight outnumbered. Superb answer. One of the things we saw right at the start of the conflict was there was a lot of coverage on the push from the south. There was a lot of coverage on the push from the north. There was a huge amount of coverage on the failed sort of attempts in Kiev itself on the capital. But there wasn't much coverage in what was happening in Donbass in the east of the country, where the majority, as I understand it, of the Ukrainian forces were held. And indeed, the majority of Russian maneuver forces were. And I was very concerned, having seen no news out of there, that the Russians were just going back to their old way of fighting, you know, rolling massive barrages of artillery, rolling over the Ukrainian brigades that were sat there in defensive positions. What happened in those first few weeks to those Ukrainian forces? Did they suffer huge casualties as well? So the Ukrainian assessment of what was going to happen was that a major invasion was unlikely prior to the war. And if it was going to happen, it would probably be against the Donbass and a limited operation to seize the Donbass. There were people in the Ukrainian system who were flagging the threat to the south, where the Ukrainians had very, very few forces and even less equipment. And there were individuals like General Sursky who were deeply concerned, the head of Ukrainian land forces, about a major offensive against Kiev. But the decision was the main threat is against Donbass, and so the bulk of Ukrainian forces were fixed in the Donbass. Now, the Ukrainian general staff were deeply concerned that a long-range precision strike campaign and the use of air power by the Russians to unpick Ukrainian logistics would fix those troops essentially in the wrong location. Fortunately for the Ukrainians, the Russians, as part of their very flawed operational plan, didn't actually conduct a large-scale campaign to deny those logistics routes and railways largely because they wanted to exploit that and use it for occupation. <laughs> and so they hadn't anticipated that their thrust against Kiev, which was their main effort, would fail. But as a result, two things happened. The first thing is that the Ukrainians were actually able to reposition a lot of their units from the Donbass up towards Kiev, something they kept very, very quiet. And you would have heard for a long time, all our best troops are in the Donbass, which just wasn't the case. But as a result, the Russians, thinking that was the case, essentially engaged in two thrusts at the north and south of the Joint Forces Operations Area to try and encircle those troops. 
and meanwhile using those mobilized conscripts from the LNR and DNR to harass the line of contact and try and fix the Ukrainian forces in those positions. The reality being there just weren't very many forces there. And so when the Russians withdrew from Kiev and shifted their axis to the Donbass again, there was a bit of a race between the Ukrainians needing to reposition to hold the Donbass to bring those troops back into that axis, and the Russians wanting to reconstitute their units as quickly as possible to start that offensive before the Ukrainians could reposition. The challenge being that that led the Russian offensive, the second one against the Donbass, to go off somewhat half-cooked, with a lot of their units still not fully reconstituted, equipment shortages, and a certain amount of chaos. And so what we saw then was the Ukrainians conduct a counteroffensive from Kharkiv, which retook a certain amount of ground in an attempt to disrupt the main line of that attempted Russian encirclement, which was from Izum south. And then once the Russians were able to actually stabilize that front with the kind of horseshoe around Severodonetsk and moving towards Konstantinovka and that area, they then resorted to this more traditional rolling artillery advance and maneuver by fire. Which we're still seeing today, right? I mean, that's the main axis of advance. But they're, they're doing some, or they have been doing some denial work around various ports and coastline activity, notably around Odessa as well. I mean, the plan was awful, wasn't it? I mean, the Russian plan was genuinely pretty poorly thought out. I think there were some aspects of it which were exceedingly poorly thought out. The main one was just not briefing the military and giving them enough time to explain to their subordinate units what their tasks were. I was in Chernobyl last week, and it's very evident that the Russian troops who were there didn't know what had happened in Chernobyl. They were using maps that predated the disaster, and they were digging in locations that it's thoroughly unadvisable to even stay, let alone dig up a load of earth. And that's reflective of the fact that the orders process just wasn't in place. You know, troops were given really little notice to move. And so by the time you got down to tactical units in the first week, it was literally just drive along that road. You know, you'll get your instructions when you hit the end. The result being that when things didn't go as expected in the initial coup de main, the follow-on force was not coordinated, not operating in a combined arms fashion. Troops were in shock. It wasn't what they'd been briefed or expected. And so combat performance was very poor. There was a lot of fratricide, not just in terms of killing their own troops, but also logistics units and internal security forces clogging up the roads, preventing artillery from getting forward and unfurling. And so, yes, the other interesting aspect is that large Russian units, because they weren't expecting contact, could run into a company of Ukrainians and would stop rather than punching through them, even though they had the capability to do so, because... They didn't know what the force was they were facing. They hadn't, you know, didn't have a J2 briefing. So yes, it was very, very badly executed. Having said that, a lot of the occupation plan, I think, was relatively sound. And it's worth noting that the Russians have been able to implement quite effectively those plans in the areas they have seized. Secondly, the networks of influence they had developed inside Ukraine went quiet and were told to go quiet at the point where it was clear things weren't working. There was a pretty nasty fight in back alleys to suppress those sabotage groups in the first couple of weeks. But had the initial execution been more successful, I think you would have seen a lot of those agents of influence be a lot more active, whereas really what they've instead been is very supportive of Ukraine because it's dangerous to be anything else. They're still in play. 
So there is also an element of the international narrative around this conflict, I think, underplays the level of risk in the opening week. And had the Russians briefed their people better, got moving faster, some of their assumptions may have tipped the other way. So a bad plan, badly executed, but a closer run thing than a lot of people appreciate. It's really interesting that you talk about the difference between what we hear in the West out of the mainstream media and what you see on the ground, whether it's the closely run thing or the the forces running around in the background in the cities, nailing down support or being quiet. This idea that the Russians just aren't as good as we always thought they were is the prevailing narrative that comes out. Russia is, you know, has an awful army and fat generals and all their generals get killed. Their capabilities are useless. Tanks are a waste of time. There is a a never-ending sort of narrative of Russian failure. I wonder whether you think, I mean, that narrative is skewed clearly towards the audience and you've already highlighted some of that do you think that this is helpful towards ukraine or is it a hindrance i mean a lot of people could be thinking well the fight's nearly over russia has a terrible army they're not doing very well you've highlighted how they're outnumbered actually what's the problem we we don't have anything to worry about i think it's a really tricky balance given how pessimistic western assessments were mainly because people in dark rooms had plugged numbers into a computer and thought that a war would run like clockwork It was very important for the Ukrainians to demonstrate that they could win in order to secure international support. Because prior to the conflict, there was a lot of support that was discussed and dismissed on the basis that it wouldn't make a difference by the time it arrived because the Ukrainians would be defeated. So I think the very effective Ukrainian information operations to convince the international community that Ukraine was a cause that you could really get behind was pretty critical. The lack of discussion of the challenges that Ukraine was facing in terms of its losses, which were very heavy, equipment shortages, and the actual scale of Russian forces and the capacity for the Russians to reconstitute and continue the fight, has probably delayed some of the longer-term structural support that will be necessary for Ukraine to transition from being able to survive to being able to win. And on the other hand, Ukraine is asking for quite a lot of support from the international community at a time when there is a rising cost of living, as you highlighted in your introduction, and treasuries are debating whether the money goes to Ukraine or whether it goes to domestic support. And so if the Ukrainians make the situation look too bad, then they risk people thinking that it's really not worth it and... People don't want to pour resource into another long, protracted, failed campaign. And so, you're, you know, at the point where the US public loses interest in supporting a war is when they think they can't win. And so there's this balance. On the one hand, you want honest information. But at the same time, the way that any narrative you put out in public tends to get exaggerated in either direction. Things are either going brilliantly or terribly, means that the Ukrainians have to be very cautious about what they release. And I think that at various points, we've seen that hinder. But on the whole, Ukrainian information operations have been very slick. On balance, I think they've got it right. The other thing that comes out from a lot of the analysis that we've been seeing is about the military capabilities and how effective they are for being used. The anti-tank weapons have been 
lauded as the most effective thing in this conflict, the lack of Russian ability to do close air support, supporting their troops in contact on the ground, the vulnerability of tanks, the long-range precision, strikes, whether missile or artillery, and then the rolling barrages and the very Russian way of doing war with high attritional levels of ammunition usage. What, in your eyes, has been, what's the ground truth over what's effective and what's not in this conflict? So I think we've fallen victim repeatedly to short videos released on social media that show maybe 20 seconds, 10, 20 seconds of an engagement, and they don't show the shaping that enabled what's just happened or the consequence afterwards. So you will see a Russian tank be hit and there's a very big flash. Whether the tank is destroyed or not is often unclear. And actually, a lot of the time, the reactive armor is effective. The Ukrainian assessment of the active protection system on the T-80, for example, is that against direct fire ATGMs, it's about 90% effective when it's on, for example. But it doesn't offer any protection against top attack munitions like Javelin or overflight ATGMs like Enlaw. So those particular munitions have been quite effective. So... The picture is a lot more complicated, and really where the Ukrainians were effective is where they were able to layer these capabilities. So on the one hand, you have your anti-tank guided weapon teams cause the enemy to dismount, to unfurl, or just delay their movement by hitting the, the lead tanks, and then you smack everything with artillery. And actually, the Ukrainians have used mass artillery formations that are independent artillery formations, not providing intimate close support, but instead delivering their own effects with their own reconnaissance, enabling those effects. And artillery has been the thing that has caused by far the most Russian casualties. So the Ukrainians are actually using quite a Russian way of fighting as well. Their long-range harassment and penetration and sabotage against Russian logistics has been effective in enabling other things, but it has not been decisive, largely because it's not been done at a scale where it could be decisive, or because Unless there is that follow-up by conventional maneuver, then what's damaged, the access tends to be shut down and what's damaged tends to be repaired. And so I think there's two massive distortions in the public narrative of this. The first one is an obsession about single platforms. Tanks suck, ATGMs are great, you know, whatever. And what that misses is that it's how you layer these things up and use them in combination that determines whether or not they're effective. And the instances that we observe just don't show those kinds of interactions. The second thing is there's a lot of systems that are really important you just can't see. So, for example, Russian artillery will have a response time of about three to five minutes, and it will adjust fire in real time if they have UAV coverage of their targets. If they don't have UAV coverage of their targets, their counter-battery rate drops to something like 30 minutes, which is terrible, and is usually about 500 meters to a kilometer off. And so appreciating the electronic warfare is actually playing a huge role on both sides and is one of the primary planning considerations for which capabilities you use and where is something that you can't tell on social media. So I think there's two things. There's firstly an obsession about individual platforms that's a problem. And the second one is there are a lot of components that are just not being discussed or for which there is not good public evidence, which is distorting people's perception of what matters and what doesn't. What about the role that both air power and sea power are playing in this? I mean, there's been lots of talk about heroic Ukrainian fighter pilots, as well as the lack of Russian ability to provide support from the air. And there have been 
long-range hypersonic missiles used. There's been precision and dumb bombs used from aircraft. There's been ships' missiles fired. There seems to have been parts played on the sideline. But, you know, in the narrative of joint warfare, navies and air forces are supposed to bring a huge amount to the party. So to start with the Navy, the Russian Navy has played a absolutely critical role, I think, in the second phase of the Russian campaign plan, because firstly, they've held the prospect of reinforcement of Transnistria, therefore significantly expanded the threat surface or the vectors of threat for the Ukrainian military. And that has tied down Ukrainian forces around the country more. Secondly, and this is the much more important one, the blockade of Odessa and Mokolaev is crippling to the Ukrainian economy, it prevents exports, and therefore it means that the Ukrainian government is going to become bankrupt and is completely dependent upon international support for its economic survival, which becomes politically more contentious as this protracts. And so the stranglehold on the Ukrainian economy and on grain exports and other things from the port of Odessa is both central to Russian hybrid warfare and shaping the narrative about the conflict by raising the price of food globally. But it's also really how they are trying to strangle and break the cohesion of the government in Kiev. And that blockade using mines, submarines and surface vessels is quite effective and can be conducted from a long way out from Odessa, which means that a small number of anti-ship missiles the Ukrainians hold is insufficient to break that blockade. The air side is, I think, a interesting picture. And this comes back to that point about people not understanding Russian weapon systems. The Russian air defense systems work, and they are as problematic as we thought they were against fourth generation platforms. They are lethal, highly effective, and rather like Russian electronic warfare is a huge enabler of the Russian forces because it just denies the airspace. The Ukrainian planning assumption is fly target drones into an area if it gets lit up by air defences, don't go there with aviation or fast air. And so the fact that the airspace is just denied over the contested areas is a huge problem for the Ukrainians when you look at the disparity in effect that a fast jet can deliver versus a drone, for example, in terms of weighted munitions on a target. The interesting thing is that for the Russians, Ukrainian airspace is pretty much denied because they lack the ability to prosecute strikes at night they are being therefore flying in the day, consequently vulnerable to manpads and being pushed up away from the manpad threat and therefore into the radar coverage of Ukrainian air defenses. And so the Russians are able to conduct close air support close to their forward line of own troops, but they really aren't able to penetrate Ukrainian airspace. On the other hand, they have a very large number of long-range precision munitions and they are able to strike Ukraine across the entire depth of the country. And whenever you're in Ukraine, there are air raid sirens multiple times a day, every day, with targets across the country being hit by cruise missiles. And so this is a real problem because it means that Ukrainian defense industry is disrupted. Logistics infrastructure is damaged routinely in depth. The rail lines are broken up and need to be repaired. It consumes a huge amount of time and resource. You have the continued strikes against cities, which both makes reconstruction non-viable to a large extent and also is very disruptive to the economy. You know, who's going to invest in the reconstruction of Kiev or go back there to open businesses if it's still under long-range precision strike? And that's also true of Lviv. And it undermines confidence in the Ukrainian government that it's not possible to defend against these things. And so 
this is something that the Russians are just going to keep doing. They're going to continue to strike in depth across the country, largely hitting civilian targets, because that's partly the point. And because they are cruise missiles, they're low flying and they don't follow a linear trajectory. It's quite difficult to set up defensive systems to be able to counter them. Most of the cruise missiles that don't reach their targets are shot down, often by cannon. They're subsonic for the most part. But nonetheless, plenty get through. So just uh, turning then to people and leadership, I mean, Zelensky has done an amazing job of taking his country's case to the world and generating a lot of revenue. The people of Ukraine are proving to be incredibly resilient, both as a general public, but also in terms of the fighters. They seem to be highly motivated, high morale, working hard, fighting hard, and holding the Russians. The Russians, on the other hand, all the reporting is that they're awful. They're committing atrocities everywhere. They're not very professional. As you've described, they're not linked up in any way. And it seems to be a very one-sided argument, which, again, might well be a distortion. But there are two sides of this in terms of both the people on the ground and then the leadership. What lessons have you seen that are worthwhile taking from there that transfer more generally to militaries and political leadership around the world? So the first thing I'd say is that the Russian low morale at the tactical level and the replacement by newly levied troops who aren't familiar with a lot of the newly implemented communication systems is a real issue for the Russians in terms of their tactical proficiency and coordination. But at the operational level and at their kind of divisional headquarters level and their fire artillery tactical groups, there is pretty good coordination, a fairly slick orders process, and now a reasonable amount of comms discipline. That doesn't translate down to platform operators who keep lighting up and clear. But certainly between headquarters, things are getting much better. And they are able to make pretty good trade-off judgments about where to apply effect. The issue that they run into is that their troops are just not motivated and don't see it as an easy fight at all. And so their capacity to build up momentum in ground maneuver and to have units that are being maneuverist, I suppose you could say, in mindset and you know, looking for opportunity and exploiting those opportunities is pretty limited. There's a lot of preparation by fire and overwhelming numbers required to get them moving. They've started to experiment with using storm groups of specialist troops to break in to areas and therefore get that momentum going, but it's not easy. On the Ukrainian side, firstly, they've mobilized as a society. And so you have a huge number of really talented civilian technicians, experts, engineers who are in the ranks and contributing their skills. And the result is a very creative, innovative approach to things. You have, at the same time, a military that had huge retention problems before the conflict, but consequently trained a lot of people in as being tank drivers and so forth, and then lost them, and they've come back. So actually, in terms of pilots and trained tank crews, etc., the Ukrainians are in a very good place. What they really lack is two things. Firstly, really good infantry skills. As I said, that's concentrated in quite a small number of units. Fine for the defense for the most part, but for the offense, they have a shortage of people who are really skilled infantiers. And second is kind of brigade level planning and divisional staff work in the Ukrainian force is pretty limited. And so, what you tend to see is that when they're putting together operations, it's a bit like a Chinese parliament. You know, everybody 
uh, you've got colonels to corporals all debating with each other in quite a free-flowing conversation about how to fix problems and get things done. It's very creative. It's very egalitarian and admirable, but it is a way of working that leads to highly effective bespoke tactical operations at the kind of maybe company level. And as soon as you get into battalion brigade level activity or maneuver, there's too many people, there's too many moving parts, and that sort of process can't really work. And so the capacity to have a NCO cadre, essentially, who can take those orders from higher level headquarters that are clear and cover all of the necessary components, and for that to be executed and implemented is something that the Ukrainians struggle to bring about. Essentially, they're operating at a smaller scale, very effectively in that local area, but it does mean that their operational level decision-making is effective on the defence, but is struggling on the attack. So as a sort of final round out, I just wonder, you've been studying wars for years and you've studied them all over the world, in Africa and Asia, in Middle East and in Europe. You know, you looked at Nagorno-Karabakh, you looked at Yemen, you looked at the Saudi attacks, you looked at Mali. You've seen a lot of these wars up close. I wonder if you think there are lessons that the West can draw out from this war that have utility for the future, or is it just too early to tell right now? There are a lot of lessons learned studies that are ongoing. I think it's very important that we feel that we have a sufficiently complete data set to draw those conclusions, which we don't at the moment. Even government figures on what the Ukrainians have done and their ammunition consumption rates and casualties are pretty um, sparse of detail. And so I think until that wider picture is available, it would be foolish to be too definitive in our conclusions. There's also an element of this war isn't over, right? And we could find that things we thought were working at the tactical level prove pretty problematic at the operational level. But I think we're probably reaching that point where the data is starting to accumulate. I would expect some more robust lessons learned to be available by September. However, there are some early things that I think are very clear. Number one is stockpiles and consumption rates. I mean, this isn't new, but it's something that we have been determined to ignore for a very long time, in spite of running out of munitions in Libya and Iraq and other places. The Ukrainians are using, they would burn through British stocks in a week if um, Ben Hodges' testimony to the Defence Select Committee on British ammunition consumption rates and exercises is accurate from last year. So the consumption rate is something that is a huge problem. And I think the Ukrainians are running into an issue as well of NATO standardization is not standardization. And NATO has been really slack in enforcing standardization. And that will come back and bite us really hard. So the Ukrainians, you mentioned that people are giving them lots of systems. If you look at the Ukrainian artillery, it's like a battery of this system, a battery of that system. They're operating maybe nine types of howitzer. And even though seven of those are supposed to be NATO standard, 155 millimeter, in reality, each one has slightly different charge requirements, slightly different primer requirements and fusing requirements, and certainly has a completely different maintenance and training burden. And so almost at each battery level, the Ukrainians are suddenly trying to manage completely separate logs, maintenance and training pipelines, which is insane. And NATO countries would run into precisely this problem. Many of the countries that provide these guns don't have the capacity to produce ammunition for their own kit at scale. 
And so what we really need is a rationalization of NATO's capability in order to have much better standardization of artillery design and ammunition. And that goes for other kinds of munitions as well. Not only so that we can better support Ukraine by simplifying what we provide, but also by massively strengthening NATO's resilience by ensuring that we can use each other's ammunition. And then a second lesson learned that I think is really critical is that armies need to be a lot more disciplined about where they seek technological advantage and where they seek mass. And there are a lot of capabilities like UAVs of all classes that are just not survivable. The lifespan of the Ukrainian UAV is maybe a week at best. And so the idea that you make these things stupendously expensive is just a bad idea. These things need to be cheap. You need to be very disciplined about what effect you want out of them and therefore where you commit the limited amount of money you're going to put against the platform. And NATO countries don't like doing things on the cheap, but actually cheap munitions, essentially, that you can use at scale is absolutely critical. And if they are enabled by those exquisite high-end systems, that's great. But you will not have enough of those systems to solely rely on them. And so I think we need to be much more disciplined ourselves about not always chasing the exquisite, but instead understanding how the exquisite can enable the fairly dumb and mundane to be much, much more effective. Just go back to your first comment you made right at the start where you outlined what happened in the last week. You talked about Ukrainian forces going back to go on the defensive more in defendable lines in better ground. But there was a big, big questions over whether they could hold. What's your forecast? Do you think that, I mean, this is obviously going to be a protracted engagement there. What are the, what are the variables that are going to determine the outcome of whether they can hold or not? So I actually might just take this opportunity to highlight that quite a lot of the analytical community that are actively engaged in this conflict have either been making predictions, which is great, or they haven't. I've been in the camp that haven't. And the reason I haven't is that I've been talking extensively to the Ukrainians about what they intend to do. And you run into this problem where to provide an accurate assessment of what I think will unfold, I would need to explain what the Russians are intending to do or what I assess they're intending to do and what the Ukrainians intend to do and how those things will interact. But of course, it would be completely inappropriate to say any of that publicly. And so instead, what I've tried to do is always highlight the enemy's most likely course of action and most dangerous course of action and how you might upset it. And I've tried to avoid predicting whether or not the Ukrainians will succeed in responding. I think the main thing is that the Russians, even even when they have stockpiles of things like laser-guided artillery shells, are often not using laser designators and are just firing them as dumb munitions. So they're putting down maybe 20,000 152 howitzer rounds a day, and they are having to move that from known points, which is the railheads. They are stockpiling them in pretty easily detectable places. And because of the volume of munitions, they can't move them quickly. So if the Ukrainians are able to break up the logistics network for the artillery, then the Russians will lose their primary advantage and means of killing Ukrainian troops, which is what is forcing the Ukrainians to withdraw and cede ground. If it comes to an infantry engagement with the Ukrainians on the defensive, I am very confident that they will be able to hold. So that's kind of the, the critical determinant at this point. On the other hand, if the Russians are able to maintain their current rate of fire against Ukrainian positions, I think we're going to see the Ukrainians slowly be walked back. And the question is, 
how do we ensure that we use the time that those Ukrainian units buy to prepare for a way of changing the dynamic on the ground? So that's really the key question for me over the next few weeks. Jack, that's brilliant. We're out of time, but thanks for coming on the show. I'm looking forward to the next instalment of your commentaries about your recent travels and and what you're going to see in the future. If you want to read more from Jack, you can find him on Twitter or his library of publications at rusi.org forward slash people forward slash Jack I hope you enjoyed the show. Do leave a rating and a review on any of your podcast streaming channels. These reviews really help us to share the content, our approach and reach new audiences. Please also send us your suggestion about topics or conflicts you'd like to see us cover. We have a packed schedule over the coming months, but we will certainly respond to your demands. The show is produced by Kieran Yates and Joe Bundon is sponsored by Rating UK. It's a production for The Wavell Room, the home of intellectual curiosity and challenging thinking for British military professionals. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.